You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get Women of the Military podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show onto all the apps people like to listen to? How much will it cost to get started? And how will I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. So, if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go for it. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Welcome to today's episode of Women of the Military. Today's guest is Kelly Rodriguez. Kelly is a retired Army veteran who served in the Army for 21 years. She is an Army spouse, an Army mom, grandmother, and the Special Assistant for the Global War on Terrorism, GWAT Memorial Foundation. I'm excited to hear about your time in the military and what you're working on today. Welcome. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on. My first question is, why did you decide to join the military? I'd love to say that there was this great story of wanting to serve, but that's not why I joined. It's why I stayed. But honestly, I'm from a small town just south of Buffalo, and I didn't see my life really going anywhere. So I decided I wanted to join the military to give myself kind of a head start on life, if you will, get me away from home and get me paid, maybe give me some skills. And what I found is that I really liked it and I was really good at it. My first six months you know, training. And then I, then I was in Bosnia within, so my first year in the army, half of it was deployed. And, you know, I was like, this, this isn't a bad life for me. I can do this. And and, and I just stayed, I, I learned to really love it. And I learned what it was to serve. And, and that kind of became who I, you know, who I am. So you went from boot camp training deployment mm-hmm. to Bosnia. That's correct. So yeah, I did basic training in, you know, my medical training. I was a medic at Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Um, My basic training was in Fort Leonardwood, Missouri. Yeah, I got to Germany, did our in-processing in Germany. The day we finished our, you know, in-country in-processing, we went to the field. And then about a week after that, our field exercise, we got on a bus and went to Bosnia. So how old were you when... You enlisted, were you 18? I was 18 when I enlisted. Yeah, I turned 18 about six months before I graduated high school. And then I I left right about a month and a half, two months after I graduated. So you were 19 when you deployed? Yep, that's correct. What were you guys doing in Bosnia? So in Bosnia, you know, this was 1997. The war had been over for a little over a year at that point. So it was a peacekeeping mission. I was part of what was called S4, the sustainment forces. Primarily what I did, because I was a private, was um, I pulled guard duty, but I also did medical coverage for convoys. So anytime a convoy went out of the wire, there's a medic on the 
vehicles, and I did that. And I also worked at the hospital in Guardian Base, which was called the Blue Factory. So just, you know, basic medic, medic duties, helping in the emergency room and helping, you know, patients get checked in and out. So those are my three main duties there. And what was the experience like being in Bosnia? I think for me, first was figuring out why we were there. I'd never really heard of Bosnia. While I was there, I actually read a book called Love Thy Neighbor, which kind of told me what the war was about, about the genocide. And, and that taught me what we were there for. We were there, to, you know, obviously to keep the peace and, and help the you know, help the local community kind of rebuild. We did other things like, you know, offered aid to some of the refugee camps and things like that. But for me, it was just, I didn't know anything different. I really didn't. It's almost like that's what I expected the army to be like, living in a tent, carrying a rifle. And that's just what the way it was. It wasn't until I got back to Germany that I realized that, you know, that's not what the, our everyday military is like. It's, but, but, you know, I didn't know anything different. In fact, I remember thinking some of the older soldiers, they would like complain about things. I'm like, what do you mean? This, this is the army. This is what we do. But because I didn't know anything else. Right. Um, of course they did. They knew how fun Germany was. So they were kind of like, man, I wish we were still in Germany. But for me, it, it's at that time, it's all I knew. So it was really, to me, it wasn't that difficult. I didn't have a family or anything. So it was, it was pretty easy. What did you do when you came back to Germany? I, I, Germany, I was in a, in a mechanized infantry unit. And so we went to the field a lot, continued training, you know, and I didn't work in an aid station or anything like that. I was always a field medic, meaning, you know, I did my job when we were in the field and otherwise we were training to go to the field. But yeah, it, it's, it was just, you know, just, we trained. That, that's really what we did in Germany. We trained, we went to Grafenbeer and Hohenfels and, and that's really what we did. Um, I didn't travel a whole lot while I was there, unfortunately. And then what was the next big change in your career? So you were at Germany for a few years and then yeah. So I went Germany, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Then I went back to Germany where I deployed to Poland, Kosovo, and Iraq. Then I came back to Fort Bragg where I deployed to Afghanistan a couple times. And then I went to Korea. And then I came back to Fort Bragg and I retired. So my only stateside assignment was Fort Bragg. I went to schools, obviously, elsewhere in the United States, but this, uh, where, and I still live here, actually. In fact, my son is stationed here in the 82nd Airborne Division. But yeah, it's, it's um, just Germany Bragg, Germany Bragg, with, with those deployments sprinkled in. What was the Iraq one? Iraq, I, I went there January 2004, so it was the very end of OIF-1. And um, in all of OIF too, and that was a year-long deployment. And um, I was a ground ambulance medic at that time. So again, a lot of convoys. I was on the road anywhere three to five days a week. I was driving somewhere. So that was a little little nerve-wracking, that deployment, because we didn't have armor on our vehicles for the first couple months we were there. But yeah, that's, uh, and I was out west. So I think of Fallujah as out west. Fallujah was east of me. I was really far west. Okay. I think people don't realize that in the beginning of the war that people really just drove around in Humvees and... Yeah, that's that's exactly what we did. In fact, we, my company was a ground ambulance company driving. When we drove in from Kuwait, we actually left in 12 vehicle convoys. And the first vehicle was a command vehicle and it had a gun on it. When I say a gun... Uh, like a crew served weapon, like a saw or a 60 M60 was what, what it was back then. I think now they're 240 bravos or something like that. But yeah, back then we had, and then it was 10 ambulances. And then we had what was called a gun truck, which was really a five ton truck with 
a gun turret on it. And that's how we drove in. We had no armor on our vehicles at all. And then when we did get armor on our ambulances, um, it was only the front half because they don't make armor for the whole box. So the back of it was still fiberglass. And all I remember thinking, all this really doing is slowing us down because the whole back of us was open. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was better than nothing. But yeah, the first couple of years of the war in Iraq, soldiers and Marines were making their own armor. They really were. I mean, they, they kind of found the steel that they could find and they welded it to their trucks and and then we also used Kevlar blankets and we would line the bottoms of our vehicles inside with Kevlar blankets that really, they helped with shrapnel. Um, if you know, like a blast, things like that. But yeah. That's crazy. I mean, it, it's crazy now when we think about it, right? <laughs> yes. Cause I was in an MRAP and a MATV and that's nothing like a Humvee. Like we no. trained in Humvees and then when we went overseas, we were in. Right. My last deployment, I didn't go out of the wire very often uh, due to my job. I was on a, a forward surgical team, but the soldiers, you know, the Cav Scouts and the infantry, they had MRAPs. And I, I know as a medic, it was, you know, helpful. The injuries weren't quite as traumatic when they were inside the vehicle. But I'll be honest with you, 21 years in the Army, I've never actually been inside of an MRAP. So. And you listed a lot of deployments. So. Yeah, well, I had three combat deployments, six total deployments, yes. I mean, yeah. there's people certainly have done more, but you know, when I was, you know, my first time in Afghanistan, I was, I traveled mainly by helicopter. When I was on ground, it was just a Humvee. And then in Iraq, it was all Humvee. Did you get attacked while you were in Iraq or Afghanistan? So in Iraq, yeah, I call it, it was more like harassment, if you will. Like you're driving down the road and people shoot at you. You don't even really know where they are sometimes. And we, our, our ETP, our, our, what we did, our plan was shooting drive and just shoot out shoot out your window and continue to drive that happened a few times we did get hit um, our convoys got hit with ieds a couple times i lost only had one death fortunately in my convoys that i covered we did get we got attacked uh, uh i say for my con convoys that i was on maybe a dozen over the year which isn't bad um i don't know the numbers for my whole company we had 40 ambulances in our company all over the country. But as far as like a direct attack, I had, there was, you know, in Afghanistan, the first time I was in, out, out in RC West, or, or excuse me, RC South, outside of uh, Tarankout, and our fire base got attacked then for a couple hours. We received some casualties, not American casualties, they were um, Afghan soldiers. And then my last time, again, where I was was pretty hot, but our, our, our observation posts and our combat outposts got attacked very regularly. Firebase I was at, we would get, again, some harassment fire. We would get some rockets in the wire periodically, but no no real sustained attacks, fortunately. So the guys around our, in our surrounding area weren't so lucky, though. Was there anything challenging about being deployed, like your peacetime missions or combat missions? I mean... Yeah, I, there's the same challenge as anybody has, I guess. Um, when you have a family, being away from your family is hard. But there's also the the easy part where you, you worry about what you have going around today, and that's it. You don't have to worry about a lot of the small stuff. But as far as the challenges, I, I think there's challenges every day for everybody, to be quite honest. It's what you do with those challenges, and, and that's true, truthfully what I, what I feel. You know, my, my last deployment, I, I lived in a really small little room. It was five and a half feet wide, nine feet long. And I had a cot and I had a little desk thing made and when, you know, and it was small and we didn't have windows or anything. And that sucked. But at least, you know, I, I think about this. I'm like, well, at least I had cement walls. Because uh, when the first two months I was at that firebase, I lived in a tent. And that was in 2009. So it's not like things were 
real easy up in the Kunar Valley. So, you know, all every challenge, it's really, it's like, it could always be worse, I guess. I, I hate to say it like that, but it, it really could. So, I mean, I don't want any specific challenges other than, you know, you're away from your family. You don't always have the supplies you need. You don't always have the personnel that you'd like to have, but you make it work. That's what you do. You know, you, you find a way to make your mission happen. And I was fortunate to have some pretty good teams that I worked with. That's good to hear. I lived in a tent when I was in Afghanistan and it was 2010. So <laughs> that's yep. just the way it was. The supplies, I, I think that you often... I've heard from people, you go, you have a mission, and then you have what you have, and you just have to make it work, and sometimes you don't have what you right. need exactly, but you make it work. Absolutely, and, and the key to that is, you know, for me, I was I was a non-commissioned officer, sergeant, and that was super important to us is not just know what you're supposed to, know exactly what you do have, because a lot of times you have things that aren't you know, that you wouldn't normally have and what's useful, what's not useful. Just, you know, just having a good inventory, knowing how to use your equipment, so important. Uh, And if I could share a small story with you, just to talk about those things, overcoming those little adversities. We were a 10-man surgical team and our operating room technician, he was also our, our medical supply sergeant. He just knew what he had and he was just a great guy. He's actually a captain now. He was a specialist and I think he got promoted to sergeant while we were there. Anyways, long story short, a guy came in and he needed a craniectomy. He, he had intracranial pressure building up and that's what had to happen. And this is not something that a 10-man surgical team does. And our trauma surgeon had been, I think that was his sixth deployment. And so he had, he had been through plenty and he knew, he knew it had to happen and we didn't have the tools that we needed. We did not have the medical equipment that we needed. But between him and our OR tech, they were like, well, we could use this bore drill. It's broken, but we can make it work. And we can use a feeding, a pediatric feeding tube and a giggly saw. And these are things that nothing had, none of these tools had anything to do with the craniectomy at all. But because they knew what they, what they had available, they knew, you know, what, what the capability of their equipment was, we were able to, to do a small craniectomy emergency. First, I think first time it was done in country at that, you know, that far forward, we ended up getting like a citation for it, in fact. But the point is, knowing what you have, you can take those those adversities and you can still, you can make something great happen. And that, that particular patient made it all the way back to Walter Reed. So that was, that's the lesson there is like, know what you have, know what you're able, able to do. Don't just complain that you don't have what you want, you know, because you're never going to have what you want downrange. Just, you're just not. Yeah, that's a cool story. And the fact that you were able to save a life by them not being like, well, we don't have what we need. Sorry. Exactly. Exactly. I, like I said, his, his name was now Captain, Captain Jared Schneider, but he was a young specialist back then. And I was like, at the end of it, I was like, wow, like this kid is, I had only worked with him about a month before we deployed. I just joined the team before that deployment. So I was super impressed and super proud of him. You talked a little bit about one of the challenges being leaving your family behind. When right. did you get married and have a family? Actually, in 2006, I did deployments with the family and without. So I, I didn't have children before then. I married my husband, who was a single father. And then I, then I had, you know, I had a family when I, for my last deployment. And that was, that was really the hardest part was just, you know, my, our, my youngest son was two and he, you know, he was going to have a birthday while I was gone. And that really bothered me that I wasn't going to be there for that. But fortunately, you know, communications were better than they were previous deployments. Mail was fairly you know, regular. We got it every two weeks or so. But yeah, it was just, just knowing things were happening home. My husband was active duty Green Beret at the time too. 
So that was a challenge. Fortunately, he was doing his instructor time at the Special Warfare Center of Schools. So he, he, we knew he wasn't going to deploy while I was deployed. So that was good. But just, it was definitely a different dynamic. You know, before you volunteer for a deployment because that's what you want to do. And you just leave your stuff in storage and you go. But with the family, you, now you have something to lose other than, you know, Mm-hmm. yourself, I guess. I hate to, to minimize it. I, I don't mean to at all, but it was definitely different for me leaving a family at home than my previous deployment. It's a year. It's a long time. A lot, especially in a two-year-old. A two-year-old changes a lot in a year. Oh, he, Yes, he did. <laughs> he grew up a lot while I was gone, but he's great now. He's great. He's 12 now. Another thing you mentioned in the bio is that you are an army mom. What is it like to be a mom of a soldier? You know, I'm super proud of him. I was, we were actually in the army together for two years. So, you know, I, I, I did, there were a couple of times we ran past each other during PT formation in the morning. So that was interesting. He almost missed my retirement ceremony because he was getting ready to deploy, but he did make it. But the hardest thing, if, if there's a hard thing, was watching him deploy and knowing where he was going and what he was going to do. Like when I deployed, my mom had no clue. I mean, you could say Afghanistan and Something could happen in the, the very northeastern corner and she'd think it was, you know, me and I was nowhere near there. With my son, I knew exactly where he was going. I knew what his job was. And so it was a lot more stressful, I think, knowing knowing what he's doing. But super proud of him too. I mean, my son, you know, knowing what my husband and I did and how our careers went, which were, wasn't bad by any means, but you know, we do, we're both, we have injuries and we have things that, that we can't seem to, to get rid of, I guess. He grew up that way and he still chose to serve in a time of war. And, you know, that's just, it is remarkable to me. Soldiers these days that they join the military knowing that there's a war. I didn't, there was no war going on when I, when I joined, you know, even though I did deploy right away, there wasn't a war. Now there is. And so holding anybody, I hold anybody that does this in high regard, but then when it's my own son, it's just pride, you know, but it's stressful. (laughs) It's, It's both. In fact, he's one of the reasons I retired. At 19 years, I was starting my retirement packet and I just didn't really feel like I wanted to, I wasn't ready. Even he was, he was, he had just joined. He was still in training. When I hit 20 years, he had just gotten to Fort Bragg and was going to 82nd Airborne Division. And I knew he was going to deploy. And that's when I decided I needed to retire because I didn't, I did not want to risk the two of us deploying at the same time. That was going to be, to me, to me, that was too much. And I know a lot of families do it, but it's too much for me. Well, I think just because someone else can do it doesn't mean that <laughs> you can do it. Oh, right? for sure. No, of course. Everybody's, you know, it's, everybody's got their own, you know, their own lives to live and their own choices to make and support, you know, with, with our, like with our kids, we have another son who's in college and people always say, did you ever try to talk your oldest out of going in? And no, and nor did we try to talk our middle son into going in, you know, it's, it's, it's something for an individual to decide, just like it, it is for an individual parent to decide if they want to stay in and serve with their child or retire or, or whatever. It's, you know, everybody's got their own, their own things that they're, they're dealing with. And they usually, you know, what's right for you and your family, I think. Did you face any struggles while serving in the military? I mean, yeah, of course. I think when I first joined the army, I was not physically fit. <laughs> that was a struggle. But I, I, you know, I got over that pretty quickly and I, I did well. I'm not a, a small person, so I struggled with, you know, meeting the weight standard. I never had a problem with the body fat taping. I never had a problem with my PT test after my first year. But I did struggle with that because, in you know, in the military, you have to, you can't just know and act and meet standards. You have to look 
a certain way as well. So, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of emphasis placed on that. So even when, like I said, even when I was meeting the standard, I felt people might look at me as if I wasn't. So it made me try harder. You, you do have issues with, you know, you're female in a male dominated industry, I guess. So you, you, there's things that you deal with that. There is harassment. And I think we've gotten a lot better, you know, from when I first came in, in the nineties to, to when I retired, things very different, you know, things that used to just be commonplace are, are no longer acceptable. I think we've made a lot of progress there. But as far as other than that struggles, I think, again, you know, and, and I, I would tell my soldiers this, they were, they were having problems with just basic things. I'm like, you joined the military, not the Cub Scouts. I hate to say it that way, but really you, it is the military and you, it's, it's not supposed to be easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. And there's a reason it's not easy. It's because we need people that can, you know, handle stress and that can perform under stress to, that's, that's why you know, that's what we do. We fight and win our nation's wars. So I think we, everybody chases, faces some sort of adversity when they serve. It's what you do about it. Do you overcome it? Do you, do you survive it, if you will? Or do you just become a victim and complain about it every day? And, and I don't, again, mean to minimize things, but, you know, either do something about it, change it, you know, that, that's, that's the answer is like, if you see something wrong, it, because it's a systemic issue, let's, let's try to do something about it. But if it's just a personal adversity, because you are really bad at something, or because you don't understand something, learn more about it. And that adversity, you know, overcoming that becomes a strength. And I think that's what makes, you know, I'll, I'll say soldiers, but I think that's what makes strong soldiers, learning to overcome adversity and become resilient and, and understand that everything's not going to be easy, but learning to overcome it. That's, that's what, you know, that's what it's all about. I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing today. You're working as a special assistant to help with building the GWAT Memorial. What exactly are you doing? Right. So that's it's about, it's, I volunteer doing this um, because my husband is the president and CEO of the GWAT Memorial Foundation. Um, I'm actually getting ready to go back to work as a VA benefits advisor. So um, that'll be my full-time job. But what the GWAT Memorial Foundation is, and I'm super proud to even be a small part of it, is we're building a memorial in the nation's capital to commemorate and to honor the service of all those that have served in the global war on terrorism. This is a big deal because, one, we're the congressionally designated nonprofit to do this. But the reason it's such a big deal is there's a piece of legislation called the Commemorative Works Act of 1986 that said a war or conflict had to be over for 10 years in order to build a memorial. And that happened four years after the memor- uh, Vietnam Wall went up. Of course, the Vietnam Wall was the first National War Memorial built in DC. At that time, there was no, there were no rules about it. So it happened very quickly. Well, since then, you know, that happened, but we've been at war for 18 years and, and I don't know if you know, but I don't know when it's going to end. You know, my husband, my son, and myself have all deployed in support of the global war on terrorism. And we have a grandson, and God forbid, but it's a possibility that he could go too. And that's just the truth of it. So we don't want our first generation of war fighters, those first few that went, you know, in 2001, we don't want to have to do honor flights like we have to do now for the Korean War. And all the World War II veterans, I mean, so many of them never saw their memorial. And if you've ever been to TC and you've gone to one of those memorials and you see those honor flights or you see a group of veterans or even one veteran at their memorial and you can see the healing that's happening, you know, that's, it's just so important. And, you know, if you think about it, think about those senior leaders that were deployed the first, the beginning of the war, 18 years ago. They were a battalion commander then. They were in their 40s. Now they're in their 60s. If we wait for 10 years after this war is over just to start the process, they're not going to see it. So that's what my husband and his team and 
Again, I'm fortunate to be able to help where I can. That's what they're doing. It's it's working on building that memorial on the mall where people can go and one, heal, two, become educated about what the global war on terrorism is. Some people don't know. Some people think, oh, it's Desert Storm. No, Desert Storm was that Desert Storm was while I was in middle school. You know, it's 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 different. And people think, oh, well, there's two wars. There's Iraq and there's Afghanistan. Like, no, the global war on terrorism includes, of course, Syria, includes places in Africa, all of that. It's it's also it's not just honoring those that were killed. It's honoring all those that serve, including the family members, including contractors. You know, we had, was it seven Americans killed in Afghanistan in January alone of this year? Three or more contractors. So it's not just, you know, the infantrymen going down, you know, shooting bad guys that are, that, that are serving and dying in this war. And it's important for Americans, I think, to understand that and honor that. Yeah, I'm super excited about it because, like you said, a place for healing, I think, having something like that is just going to be amazing to go see. And it is really nice that it's happening now instead of 10 or 20 years from now, because like you said, the people who first fought in the war won't be here for it. So I really appreciate it. Can you tell people if they want to support of course. So our website is, and that's probably the easiest way to get all the information because it's also got the links to all of our social media is www.gwatmf.org. And on that page, it'll tell you about the, the team. It'll tell you about um, our ambassadors, our advisors, board of directors. And it actually tells you the plan, where we are on the plan. It's, and again, it's got links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And it's also got a donate button if you want to do that. There's a store button where you can buy whatever you want. But to me, the important thing is go and find out what it is that we're doing. Follow us on social media. We do put updates out there pretty regularly. Um, It's gwatmf.org and um, it's at gwatmf. On social media. On all the social media. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll put links to that in the show notes so that if people- Awesome. Thank you. That way it's just easier for people to find it. I have one last question for you. What would you tell girls considering joining the military? I think the same thing I would tell anybody. Let me preface my answer, if, if I can. I was very blessed. We talked, we talked about Desert Storm real briefly before. I had two Desert Storm veterans as my first two female NCOs when I got to my unit in Germany, and they lived in their track vehicle for however long they were there. It was going to be in almost, I think, two months. They taught me, you're a soldier. You're not a female soldier. You're a soldier. You do your job. You do it well. You do the, you know, you, you, you do everything that you're capable of doing, and that's what I would let anybody know. You're joining the military. It is disciplined, it is rigorous, it's not easy, and it's not supposed to be easy. But it is the most rewarding thing I think you will ever get. And that's what I, that's what I would tell people. It's, it is an education you cannot receive anywhere else. I learned more about myself in my eight weeks of basic training, I think, than, than I probably learned, you know, in the past five years. I, I, I learned what I was capable of. I learned my strengths and weaknesses. I learned teamwork. I learned how to just follow orders, which is a pretty good skill to have. <laughs> but I would just let people know, if, if, I, if I was speaking directly to females, just don't ask for special treatment ever. Understand it's hard. It's supposed to be hard. You work hard. You prove yourself. That's all you can ask for. And you're going to be seen as exactly what you what you are. You know, you're, if you're a good soldier, you're going to be your good soldier. If you see a problem, address it. But, but everything that happens that you don't like isn't a problem. That's and, I, and I've told my soldiers this before, you know, I've been out for a year and a half now and I would let my soldiers know like, oh, well, you're picking on me because I'm, I've had people tell me that you're picking on me because I'm a female. I'm like, oh, I'm a female too. And I'm not picking on you. I'm correcting you because you have a deficiency. But if the first thing you think about is, oh, I'm, I'm, it's because I'm a female, well then 
And that's, that's, that's the problem right there. It's no, it's because how about look at there's a deficiency. And now if you say, well, no, I don't have a deficiency, then maybe there is a problem. But I honestly, my opinion, I would say nine times out of 10, it's just whoever's correcting you, they want you to be the best soldier because at the end of the day, you're on their team. And if you're not doing your best, the whole team can't be their best. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the key is you just, everybody's got to do their part to be part of that team because you're always part of something bigger. You really are. And if everybody just does their best, tries their hardest, treats everybody with dignity and respect, regardless of gender, you know, it, it, I actually talked about this one time. I was like, in the army, you don't get judged on anything other than your ability to meet the standard. Really. I mean, that's, that, that's the way it should be. And that's usually how it is. If you're, if you're meeting the standard, you're, you're following regulations and you're going to be okay. If you're exceeding the standards, you're going to be awesome. But that's it is work hard, pay attention and understand it's not easy, but that's, that's the way it's, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be. Thank you for your time and for the wisdom that you've given. I've really enjoyed getting to learn a little bit about what you did in the military and just the wisdom that you've given to people who are either in or considering joining. Well, I appreciate it. You know, just my husband still calls me old Sarge sometimes, but it's I, I am passionate about soldiers and veterans. That's why I'm going back to work for the, the VA. I just want to help soldiers understand that there's life after the Army, and it's okay if you still want to stay connected to the military, because I certainly do. I really miss it. But even when your time's up and your body's a little broke, you know, you just find a new way to serve, and, and that's the key. I appreciate you having me on, Amanda. I really do. Thank you. Do you want more stories of military women veterans? I just launched a book sharing 28 stories of military women. It includes stories ranging from women in the process of joining the military to women who have served and retired. Stories from the Army, Air Force, Marines, and Navy. But don't take my word for it. Hear what Natalie said about the book. This is a fabulous collection of inspirational stories of endurance, struggles, and women forging their own futures. The diversity of their background and experience is fascinating, but the broad range of military careers is astounding and sets to heart how integral women are in the military. This is a must-read for anyone considering a career with the armed forces or struggling to figure out their future career. The challenge and adjustments these women have made to create the life best suited for them is the type of motivational encouragement that can help others be confident in reaching their dreams. Check it out on my website, Airman to Mom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of women of the military.